beginning at chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, who is this? What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to give a small public service announcement here before we get into uh, our sermon. It's something uh, that's in your bulletin, so you can find more information there. But we are starting up a new small group. I'm actually going to be leading the small group. It's going to be on Tuesday evenings from 6.30 to 8.30, right here in the Oak Park area, beginning February 25th. And this group is for people that are new to Calvary. So if you're new to Calvary and you're like, I want to meet you, I want to meet other people that are new to Calvary, I want to get connected, this would be a great opportunity for you. So if you've been thinking about joining a small group, but you've been putting it off, um, then encourage you uh, to do this. Uh, you can, we can look in the bulletin. You'll find more information there. You can go online, uh, register your interest in being there. We're going to get started February 25th. So I hope to see uh, many of you there and to meet many of you who I have not uh, had a chance to meet yet. All right. Well, as we get going, I've got something I want uh, you guys to watch. Uh, so we'll turn our attention to the screens. Behold, on a throne, a king and his queen, dust transformed, scepter given, and born into the very image of the word, exalted in perfection, firstborn of creation, and a lordship that covers the earth, creatures made, but children destined, the very light of the divine shone from their faces. Who was their equal? To whom did they bow, but to him alone? Who made all things, but the blood that ran through their veins was mortal, and even in their perfection they fell short of the heavenly glory, destined to fall from the moment they began, for freedom was their curse, a gift too great. Behold, in the garden, a serpent, glory gliding, beauty gilded, and given as a steward to the king and queen, exalted in perfection, power beyond measure, and a knowledge deeper than the sea. Appointed alone as the guardian of Eden, he beheld the glory of the divine image. Who was his equal? To whom did he bow but to those alone to whom earth's dominion properly belonged? But the place to which he had been assigned seemed beneath him, and in his pride he coveted the kingdom of men, destined to fall from the moment he began, for freedom was his curse, a gift to free. So I don't know if you can tell, but that's Lord of the Rings in the background. <laughs> but if the story of the Bible was written like Lord of the Rings, that's my, what it might sound like. 
So we are continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, and we're going to meet here in today's sermon, the villain of the story finally makes an appearance. And uh, if you've been following along with us since January when we started our series, you've seen that things have gone exceedingly well. So Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen humanity enthroned as the priest, king, and queen of the world, serving God in the garden sanctuary of Eden, mediating the life of God to creation, and reflecting the triune nature of the Godhead. So, so far, so good, so beautiful. Everything is going as it should. And then we get to Genesis 3, and the train comes off the proverbial tracks here. And Satan enters the story. The term Satan actually is just a Hebrew transliteration. It means adversary. The Satan enters the story. Now, just reading Genesis 3, as we have, it's not perhaps immediately obvious, if you're not too familiar with Christianity, that Satan is actually present in Genesis 3. We have Adam, we have Eve, we have a serpent, and we have God. But there are passages in the New Testament that reveal, that show to us that the serpent in Genesis 3 is actually animated by the presence of Satan. So, for instance, in Revelation 12, 9, the Apostle John refers to Satan as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the New Testament authors came to see and was revealed to them and understand, actually it was revealed earlier even in the Jewish tradition, that this one that had, had a waged war with humanity in Genesis 3 was actually the adversary, Satan. But the Bible doesn't give a ton of clarity about Satan. It doesn't tell us much about how he became our adversary, what his motivations were, what he was trying to accomplish when he tempted Adam and Eve. And so in an effort to fill the gaps here on this, two narratives, two devil narratives emerged in the Christian tradition, in the early years of the Christian tradition. One was championed by a third century Christian teacher, a prominent third century teacher named Origen. And another was championing, championed by St. Irenaeus, who was the second century bishop of Lyon. And these two accounts are very similar in a lot of ways, but they have some key differences in them. So this is going to be a two-part sermon. The first part of the sermon is going to be a little bit of a church history lesson on how the church has navigated the idea of Satan. And I'll give you fair warning that this was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. So you just settle in. <laughs> I've always said you should never ask someone what they're studying in their doctoral dissertation because they'll talk to you for like an hour and a half. So you're trapped, and you're going to have to listen to me tell you about my doctoral dissertation. Then, after you've heard about my doctoral dissertation, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3. And we're going to um, look at Genesis 3 in light of the Irenaean account of the devil, which I think is the better account. And we're going to see what we can learn about how sin has impacted humanity and what God has done to help us. So first, these two competing devil narratives. We're going to start with Origen's narrative because it's the dominant narrative. It's the one that probably most of us here are familiar with, if we're familiar at all, with the narrative of the devil in Christianity. I call this the pride narrative because this is 
the narrative in which Satan's first sin is seen to be pride. According to the pride narrative, Satan is created as the highest of all of God's creatures, second only to the Son of God himself. But Satan is indignant that he's been created in second place. He doesn't want to be subservient to the Son. And in his pride, he leads a rebellion against the Son, trying to usurp the Son's throne in heaven. The heavenly coup fails. The devil and his angels are cast out. But Satan is not done. He's still determined to strike against God. And since the direct assault upon God and Jesus has not worked, the devil decides to avenge this initial defeat by attacking humanity. He's caught wind that human creatures exist, that God cares for creatures, these human creatures. And so he attacks humanity. So in the pride narrative, the fall of the devil and the angels occurs in heaven prior to the temptation of humanity. In this narrative, the initial conflict of the Bible story is between God and the devil. Humanity only becomes involved in the conflict, is swept up into the conflict as an overflow of this conflict that already exists between God and the devil. And most significantly, and here's a key difference in this narrative, is that the spoil of war, the prize that is being contested over, is the son's heavenly throne. This is the thing that's being fought over. The conclusion of Origen's pride narrative is that God ultimately defeats the devil through Jesus, the Son of God, who reasserts his rightful divine lordship. The devil is cast out into the lake of fire. Righteous human beings are taken up to be with Jesus in heaven and the good angels, and then everyone lives happily ever, ever after in heaven. All right, so that's Origen's pride narrative, and as I mentioned, that's the dominant narrative that probably most of us are familiar with. But there was another narrative in the first couple centuries of the church, a narrative earlier than Origen's pride narrative, and we can call this narrative the envy narrative. And this narrative, as I mentioned, was championed by St. Irenaeus. He was the bishop of Lyon and a, uh, an influential teacher in his own right. And the basic gist of Irenaeus's envy narrative is that the devil's first sin was not pride against God, but envy of Adam and Eve. Important to this envy account, and Irenaeus talks about this quite a bit in his writings, but important to this envy account is the idea that humanity was created uniquely in the image and likeness of God. They were created as the lords of creation, as we've seen already. And as such, humanity not Satan or the angels, was originally the highest of all of God's creatures. The devil, then, was created as a steward, an angelic servant of humanity. He was appointed to watch over the world on behalf of humanity until humanity came of age and was ready to assume their lordship and care of creation. At the proper time, the devil was to hand the keys to the kingdom over to humanity. So you can think Denethor in Lord of the Rings. He's the steward of Gondor, right? He is to, he is to guard the throne for the long-awaited king of Gondor to return. Right? It's the role of a steward. But Satan, like Denethor, secretly believed himself to be more worthy of the earth's throne than humanity. 
So driven by envy, the devil deceived humanity, as we recorded in Genesis 3, and that's his first sin. So his first sin is found in the pages of Scripture in Genesis 3. Having successfully deceived Adam and Eve, the devil, the devil takes possession of the world and sets himself up as an imposter, tyrant, king. In this envy narrative, the initial conflict then of the Bible's storyline is between Satan and humanity. God gets involved in that conflict as an overflow or as a response to the already existing conflict that exists amongst his creatures. And most significantly, the spoil of war, the thing that is being contested between Satan and humanity, is not God's throne in heaven, but humanity's throne upon the earth. It's humanity's earthly throne that is being fought over. In the conclusion of the envy narrative, God comes to the rescue of humanity, defeats the devil through Jesus, the Son of Man, the true and better Adam, as he is called in Scripture. Jesus throws down the devil, reestablishes humanity's rightful lordship over a renewed and consummated creation. Humanity then finally comes of age and ascends beyond the angels while God descends to earth and dwells forever with humanity in a redeemed and renewed creation. Now, let me give you two brief words as to why I think that Irenaeus's devil narrative is better to follow than Origen's devil narrative. First, as I've already mentioned, Irenaeus's envy narrative is earlier than Origen's pride narrative. We actually don't see Origen's pride narrative until Origen. But there are a number of early church fathers who agree with Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is writing at the end of the second century. The last apostle dies at the end of the first century. So there's only about 100 years between the death of the last apostle and Irenaeus' writing. And not only is Irenaeus telling the envy narrative, but there are other church fathers, there are other writers that are also telling the envy narrative. Now, it's not that everything that was early and more common is automatically true, but the earlier something is, the more likely it was to have been affirmed by the apostles. So that's the first reason. Second reason, more importantly, though, is Irenaeus's envy narrative is more faithful, I think, to the overall arc of scriptures. As we saw in the first week of our series, the first weeks of our series, Genesis presents humanity as the lords of creation, appointed by God to rule over all that he has made, the royal king and queen sitting upon humanity's or the world's throne. And Irenaeus's envy narrative affirms the goodness of the world that God has made, insofar as Satan enviously desires to possess it. So envy, uh, Satan sees the world that's been made. He sees humanity. He sees humanity's throne. And it's so good, he sees it to be good, and he wants to possess it. What's more, is contrary to Origen's narrative, Scripture does not speak about a pre-creation fall of the devil. 
such as we find in the prior narrative. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, Isaiah 14. Some of you are not thinking that to yourself, which is fine. But those of you that are thinking Isaiah 14, I can just say that there are reasons, I think good reasons, for why that is not a reference to Satan. So taking the scripture at face value, the first sin that we see Satan commit is in Genesis chapter 3. Further, the serpent, and thus Satan, is introduced into Genesis chapter 3 as one of the creatures under Adam and Eve's authority, which is actually more in keeping with Irenaeus' envy narrative. Irenaeus' envy narrative ends then in a way that is consistent with the overall storyline of the Bible. We saw the ending of the storyline of the Bible at the first week of our series, Irenaeus ends in the same place. For Irenaeus, Christ enters the story as the second Adam. So he often refers to Jesus as the second Adam, who does what the first Adam wasn't able to do. The first Adam fails, the second Adam comes and does what the first Adam could not. The first Adam lost to the devil, the second Adam defeats the devil. He comes as the long-awaited king who overthrows the devil and reasserts humanity's lordship over creation. And all that is very much in keeping with the Bible's storyline. So more could be said here, but in the main, Origen's narrative, I think, cuts against the grain of Scripture, while Irenaeus's narrative cuts with the grain of Scripture. So the main, main point of all of this is that I'm with Irenaeus on this one. And since I'm preaching, you're going to have to be with Irenaeus, too, on this throughout the remainder of the series. So as we encounter the devil in Genesis 3, and then as we encounter the devil occasionally throughout the story as well, Irenaeus' backstory becomes the story that I'm working from. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Genesis 3 and focus our attention on three elements of this passage. I want to look at the nature of sin. I want to look at the effects of sin, and I want to look at God's response to sin. All right? So Genesis 3. As we've already noted, Adam and Eve have a high and exalted position. They are the priest, king, and queen of the world. They are the only creatures said to exist, not just here in Genesis, but throughout the whole scripture, they're the only creatures said to exist in the image and likeness of God. No other creature not even the highest archangel can boast of such a high position. Now, when the last time we made our way through Genesis 2 was a couple of weeks ago, we breezed by two trees. We're going to encounter these trees again in Genesis 3. So let's circle back to chapter 2, verse 9, and take a look at these two trees. We're introduced to these two trees. There was the tree of life in the midst of the garden and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first tree granted Im immortal life and could be eaten from at any time. The second tree contained a secret knowledge and was to be avoided under God's uh, jurisdiction under the pain of death. Now, Satan knows all of this. He sees the glory and the greatness of humanity he sees the glory and greatness of their royal throne, the glory and greatness of their world, and he desires to possess it for himself. And what better way to take possession of it 
than to knock off the king and the queen. And so he deceives Eve. Let's listen to the lie that he tells then in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He tells Eve that if she eats of this forbidden fruit, she will be like God. And oh, the irony here. Because of all creatures in creation, she is like God. She already is the thing that Satan is trying to sell her. But isn't that the way of things? We always want more. We always think that happiness is out there. We're not content. We never have enough. We always want the next thing, certain that the next thing will be the thing. That will be the thing to bring us happiness. The devil comes to Eve, and he's like, God knows some things that you don't know, and that's not fair. He's holding out on you. He's up there in heaven putting on airs, thinking he's all better than you. And Eve should have been like, he is better than me, <laughs> right? That'd finish the conversation, move on, and everything looks good, right? But Eve doesn't. If you remember reading in the gospel accounts where the angel comes to Mary, and speaks some words to Mary. And Mary has said a couple times to ponder these things up in her heart. I think Eve is doing the same thing, but with a more disastrous result. The angel's speaking to Eve, and she's pondering these things in her heart. She's taking them in, and she's considering. She should have rejected the offer right at the beginning, but now she's pondering, I'm not sure what evil is. Doesn't sound too bad. Sounds kind of interesting. And the fruit does look good to eat. And so both her and Adam eat of the tree, and both are plunged into ruin, just as God said. And here's the first lesson that Scripture teaches us about sin. We fall into sin when we think we know better than God. We fall into sin when we think we know better than God. We think we know a surer path to blessing and happiness than God's path. We think we know better than God what we really, truly need. But when we think we know better than God and we go outside of his plan, we inevitably harm ourselves. We're actually robbing ourselves. We're not blessing ourselves. This is so easy to see if we're parents. Can I get an amen on this? But don't you know, <laughs> when you're trying to teach your kids something, and you're like, you should do this, you should do this, it's, we're telling them that because we know, like we've been there, we've done it, like we know this is going to be the path of blessing. But our kids think they know better than us, right? It's so exasperating as parents, right, that our kids think they know better than us. I was walking my five-year-old out to uh, school just a couple days ago, and it, we have the snow out here now, and we had shoveled the sidewalk, so a nice path from the back door to the garage, and then you got the, you know, a couple inches of snow, and then she's walking in her little sneakers with her, like, ankle-high socks, and I say to her, stay on the sidewalk, because you keep your feet dry, and so what's the very first thing that she does? <laughs> she just jumps right over into the snow, 
It's like, oh, oh, you mentioned snow. And now that I see it, it looks fun to walk in. I think I know better than you. I'm going to walk in the snow. Right? And she gets her feet and shoes all covered with snow. And then, of course, they're wet because we're not going to go back inside and change. Right? It's so exasperating as parents because we know what our kids need. But here's the thing. All of us are kids before God. We're all children before God. We like the analogy of being God's children when what it's saying about us is that God cares for us and he watches out for us and he protects us. But we're actually a little indignant about the analogy of being God's children when it's a critique of our wisdom, when it's a statement about our dependence and our lack of capacity to make good choices for ourselves without guidance and direction. Where in your life this morning are you tempted to think that you know better than God? Where you're acting like a child, but not in a good way. When you think you know better, where do you need to embrace the fact that you are only a child with limited understanding who isn't wise enough to chart your own course? Where are you willfully and intentionally taking a path that is the opposite, the exact opposite of what you know God has told you? Now, sometimes we're not quite sure what God wants from us. Life can be complicated. But there are times that we know exactly what God wants from us. It's very clear in Scripture. The Spirit has made it very clear what he wants from us. And we go the other way. Do you really think that you know better than God? I have a counselor friend. You make a comment, and then she'll pause and say, let's sit with that just a moment. So let's sit with this just a moment. Do we really think that we know better than God? Because when God says, go right, this is the pathway to blessing, and we say, no, we think the pathway to blessing is to the left, and we go left, what we're saying is, I know better than you, God. I know better than you about what will bring me joy and make me happy. Ponder that. Whatever that situation is in your life right now where you're wanting to go one way and God's saying go the other way. Do you really think that you know better than God in that situation? When we willfully go against God's directive, we're saying that we know better. But who is more likely to be right? I mean, who is more likely to be right? God is more likely to be right. God is right, right? He knows better than us. And this is the heart of the outworking of faith. Not just believing that God exists. That's the easy part. Even the devils believe that God exists, James tells us in James chapter 2. Believing in the existence of God doesn't require faith. What takes faith is believing that God's ways are the best ways and believing it so sufficiently that we are actually going to live our lives according to it and follow it. Don't try to go your own way or follow your own counsel. Embrace your childlikeness and give up your independent pride that insists that you know better than God. 
You are only going to harm yourself. God isn't out to rob you of joy. That's not why he commands the things that he commands. Any more than a good parent isn't out to rob his or her children of joy. God is trying to lead us into life and joy. So embrace in faith this path that he has put before you. Trust that God has your best interest in mind and that he will bring you to your best life. We hear sometimes on TV about your best life now. God isn't interested in your best life now, right? He's trying to get you to your best life. And to get you to your best life is going to require that you have some discipline, that you make some choices you don't like, that you go some ways that you wouldn't go on your own. But he knows what you need to get to your best life. So we've got to be willing to follow him into the hard places, to do the things that aren't intuitive to us. We've got to be willing to follow him, trusting that he is taking us to the place where we will be blessed, not now, perhaps, but certainly and surely in the days to come. But Adam and Eve did not follow God in faith. They thought they knew better, and we do too so often. And let's look at the effect of sin. Look what the text says in verse 7. Adam and Eve, they break the divine command, and immediately their eyes are opened. Satan told them their eyes would be opened, and their eyes were opened. But the opening of their eyes wasn't the blessing that they thought it would be. It actually proved to be their undoing. They've stolen the forbidden fruit. They've found out what this thing called evil is. And it has harmed them. And it has made them ashamed of themselves, just as God said it would. And the very first thing they do is they try to cover up and hide themselves. Such a contrast from the end of chapter 2, where they were naked with each other and unashamed but they're no longer at peace in their nakedness, no longer at ease in their vulnerability. And Genesis is getting at more than just physical nakedness here. The physical nakedness of Adam and Eve is indicative of a deeper soul shame. They have been damaged in their innate being. They see their own brokenness in the face of the other, and they can't bear to be together. And then in verse 8, these two fallen priests hear God coming into the temple garden. And they don't want to see, they're afraid to see their brokenness in his face as well. And so they hide from him. And so tragic what has happened. God, who is their life, their sustenance, and whose very image they have been made, has now become a source of fear to them. And here's the important thing that I want us to see this morning. Sin is more than just a wrong action, more than just a blot on our record. Sometimes we can think of sin that way. Here I am. I commit a sin. I do this action. God's got a kind of a, a book, a black book of all the bad things I've done, and he makes a note in it. And now I've got a sin to my account. I've got a sin to my record. But that's not what sin does. Sin doesn't just stay out there on our account, on our ledger. Sin impacts us. 
like a physical force. It bludgeons us. It, it corrupts us and changes us and makes us less than God wants us to be. Sin has wounded Adam and Eve. It has broken them. They are no longer able to be what they were created to be. How can they be royal priests of the world when they can no longer bear to be seen by each other, when they can no longer bear to be in the presence of God? So God steps in to this situation of shame and brokenness. He sorts it out, as all parents do. He asks some questions, even though he knows the answers. And we do that, too, as parents sometimes, right? You know, we ask questions. We know the answers to them already. And he pronounces their doom in 319. From the dust they have been made, and to the dust they will return. They are cast out of the garden temple. They are severed from the tree of life. They have been fired as priests. They have been dethroned as king and queen. Their sin has broken them. And now, in response, God is unmaking them. He refuses to let them live indefinitely in their broken and ruined state. Cut off from Eden, destined to return to the dust, the only thing that waits for them now is death. And such has been the human condition ever since. All of us living on this side of Eden, we know that we are not well. Every time we fall short, not just of God's expectations, when we fall short of our own expectations, we know that we are not well. And here in Genesis 3, we see the heinous nature of sin, not just a mark on our record, not something just merely external to us that leaves us untouched, but a wound that impacts us and damages our humanity and the core of our nature. We as a race have spent all of human existence trying to put ourselves back together again. All psychology, all philosophy, all religions, all of it is driven by a deep awareness of our brokenness. But try as we may, we have not found a way to put ourselves back together or fix ourselves. And this is the problem that we are born into, each of us. We are born to be more than we are. We know we should be something, but we can't get there. We are like waves that peak only to crash empty upon the shore. I was watching a, a video show uh, on cable about painting cars. And the painter referenced one paint job as a 10-foot paint job. And what he meant was the car looked good from 10 feet away. But if you got any closer than 10 feet, you could see all the imperfections of the paint job. I thought, that's a metaphor for our lives. We are 10-foot people living in a 10-foot world. We look good from 10 feet away. But as you get up close and you look at me, you look at you, we can see the imperfections. We can see the cracks in the paint. Do you feel that this morning? 
Are you willing to acknowledge it? Do you own that you are not all that you should be? Not just not all that you could be, but all that you should be, all that you should have been, all that God wanted you to be, all that you should have stepped into in this world but fall short. We should be more than we are, but we're not. Something is broken in us. Something's the matter with us. And if our story ended there, the story of the Bible would be a very sad and unhappy tale. But mercifully, it doesn't end there. In the midst of this tragic chapter, God gives a word of hope. The word of hope is contained within the word of judgment that God speaks to the serpent in 315. Satan's rebellion against humanity will not go unpunished. One day, a child born of the line of Eve will arise. And this child will crush the head of the serpent. And humanity will be delivered from the tyranny of our adversary. But I wonder what might have passed through Satan's mind in this moment. Perhaps he wondered, how could this possibly be? How could one from the fallen and broken line of Eve ever be a threat to me? How could a mere mortal ever be strong enough to overthrow the serpent's tyranny? And how much more confident Satan must have been in his stronghold than when he had pinned the promised son of Eve to a Roman cross that first Good Friday? course, we on this side of the incarnation know the full story. This promised son of Eve is also the promised son of God. He turned the weapon of the enemy back upon him, and he used it to set us free from Satan's tyranny. Through his death, the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, Jesus broke the power of death. And he disarmed the devil. And he reconnects us to the life of God and begins to restore us and to heal us. He returns to us the priestly robes and the royal crowns. And he makes us, he makes all things new again. This promised son of Eve, who is also the son of God, he is the one who heals humanity And in healing humanity, he heals humanity's world. So I end with this. Do you know him? Has he healed you? Many of you I know, you know him. You walk with him. You've been walking with him faithfully. Others of you, I know you don't know him. You've told me at various times, and I also know in a church our size, there's going to be people that are still perhaps sitting on the fence. Do you know him this morning? Has he begun the healing work in you? This is the whole message of Christianity, that Jesus saves. He can redeem you from your foolish choices. He can wipe away your sins. He can give you back your life and take away your shame. He will save you from the cunning of the adversary 
and he will return to you your world. Don't run and hide from God when you hear him coming. If you hear him coming for you this morning, don't run and hide from him. He is your only hope. And he comes to you with a word of hope. He comes to you with forgiveness and grace. Don't try to find happiness your own way. Don't, don't run and hide from others and from God. God loves you with a deep and paternal love. He doesn't speak a word of judgment upon us. He speaks a word of hope into our lives. We lost everything in the garden when we thought we knew better than God. We lost everything when we went our own way and followed our own wisdom. But now, today, this day, in this morning, God is calling you to repentance. He calls you to turn from your independence to turn from your self-sufficiency and your life of sin, turn from your limited wisdom, and to trust in the redemptive, life-giving gift of his son. God offers us redemption free of charge. We can't earn it. We can't twist his arm to give it. We can't merit it. He gives it to us freely to be received as a free gift. Take the gift that God is extending to you. Let him begin the healing work in your life. What will it cost me, you say? Well, it'll cost you your soul. That's what it costs you. You bring to him all that you are, and he will fix you and heal you. He will make you everything that you were designed to be, and he will give you back to yourself whole. Let the redemptive story of the Bible be your story too. Let Jesus be for you what he has already become in his resurrection, the Lord and Savior of creation. I close with a word from Irenaeus. He says this, If therefore you offer to him what is yours, that is, faith in him and subjection, then you will receive his art and become a perfect work of God. Bring to him your brokenness. Bring to him your shame. Bring to him your sin. That's what we have. Bring to him what you have. Bring it to him in faith and subjection, and he will take it. And he will work in you his perfect handiwork and make you a masterpiece of grace. Give your life to him. Even this morning, if he's calling to you, give your life to him. You can do it in the quietness of your heart. You can pray with someone else. You can come forward after the service and pray with one of the prayer partners that are be up front. But don't leave here this morning if God is speaking to you and he is knocking on the door of your heart and he wants you to give yourself to him. Give yourself to him and receive the free grace of Christ's salvation. Father, thank you 
you gave us Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that we, not just Adam and Eve, but all human beings who have gone ever since, we have made a mess of our lives. We think we know better. We go our own ways, and it doesn't work out. We've harmed ourselves. We harm ourselves. We can't undo the mess that we have made. We cannot climb out of the pit that we have dug and fallen into. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the hope of new life. Thank you that we can trust in him to lead us into the path of blessing and freedom. I pray, Lord, if there are any here this morning, and I know that there are some here this morning, that you want to speak a word into their heart. Give them the capacity by your spirit to hear you speaking to them and give them the capacity by your spirit to respond in faith. May they experience the redemptive, renewing work of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.